Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of the Ringside Nutrition Podcast with me, your host, Jack Coke. Now, this is something that I wanted to do for a long, long time, and I'm really happy to share this podcast with you today. But before we dive straight into episode one with my first guest and talk all things nutrition for combat sports, I just want to quickly share with you some background information about me, what I do, and why I'm bringing you this podcast series. As you would have gathered already, my name's Jack. And I'm a registered sports nutritionist specialising in combat sports nutrition, where I work with professional combat sports athletes, including boxers, MMA fighters, Muay Thai fighters, jiu-jitsu fighters. And I do this through in and out fight camp bespoke nutrition support. So all support I give is bespoke and tailored to each individual fighter. I help these fighters make weight safely, meaning they don't have to spend hours sitting in a sauna. I help them get fitter and stronger by planning nutrition interventions around their training sessions, which can help them retain or pack on muscle mass. I also make sure that they get up to perform at their best when it matters most on fight night. I hate seeing talented fighters not reach their full potential because they don't know how to fuel themselves properly or how to cut weight safely when it matters most in fight week. And this is where this podcast is going to come in. This podcast will help you as a fighter bolster your knowledge about nutrition for combat sports, what you need to eat and when. You'll know how to cut weight safely in fight week, how to map out your nutrition year round to stay in shape so you're always fight ready, what supplements are beneficial and which ones are safe to take for you as a fighter, how to rehydrate optimally post weigh-in. I could go on with all of this, guys. You'll take so much away, which will help you become an all-round better fighter. The way it's going to work is that each week I'll be having a chat with expert guests such as performance nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches working with fighters, coaches themselves and professional fighters who will all be able to share their experiences and their wealth of knowledge they've gathered from working or competing in the combat sports arena. Now, that's probably enough of me rambling for a while now. So it's time to get stuck into the very first episode of the Ringside Nutrition Podcast. My guest on today's show is Dr. Carl Langan-Evans. Carl is not only an ex-international level taekwondo fighter, but he also holds a master's in exercise physiology and acquired his PhD in nutrition and weight making in combat sports at the prestigious Liverpool John Moores University. There are very few people you can actually call specialists or experts, but Carl is certainly one of them. He's published an abundance of papers and case studies in nutrition and physiology for combat sports, which I use to inform my own practice. But Carl doesn't just sit at his desk writing papers all day. He applies the very things he learns in the lab and applies them when he works with professional athletes who compete in professional boxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu and taekwondo to help them perform and make weight better. Carl really is the guy to go to for advice on nutrition if you're a combat sports athlete. And I'm so, so glad that you joined me on this very first episode. Now it's quite a long episode, but I'd highly recommend that combat sports athletes and those working closely with fighters to strap yourselves in, grab a notepad and a pen and listen to the full episode. We cover how to plan your fight camp, the importance of getting some body comp analysis done at the start of camp, resting metabolic rate testing, low energy availability, how to calculate how much protein, calories, uh, carbohydrates and fats you need to have, how to cut weight safely in fight week, And we touched a little bit on how to rehydrate post weigh-in. Enough chat. Let's get straight into the episode. The record button has been hit, which means we're live for the very first episode of the Ringside Nutrition Podcast. My guest on today's first episode is none other than Dr. Carl Langan-Evans. Hi, Carl. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Nice to see you, Jack. Hope hope you're well. Yeah, thanks so much for giving up the time to come on the podcast, Carl. Now, Myself, obviously, and other practitioners working in the combat sports field will know a great deal about you and the research you've published and the work you do. Do you want to just tell the audience and the, the fighters listening kind of like who you are and what you do, essentially? Yeah, sure. Um, so as, as you mentioned, I, I did my PhD doctorate in, in actually making weight in combat sports. Um, probably sidetracking a little bit, actually, mate. I'll give, give you the context of how I got there. So, yeah. <laughs> former combat sports athlete myself. Um, so I used to compete in Taekwondo for the past 15 years. Um, I, well, say for the past 15 years, for 15 years, wasn't about 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> Not now then. And then, 
Yeah, oh God, no, definitely not now. Um, so I, as as a part of that, uh, underwent a lot of stuff that, you know, the, the combat sports athletes do, you know, making weight and high training volumes, injuries, things like that. And towards the latter stages of my career, I was having to lose quite a lot of weight to make make my weight category. So I'm five foot, five foot, well, for probably five foot eight now. I was five foot nine when I was a little bit little bit younger. Um, I used to compete in 58 kilos, so nine stone, 125 pounds. So I used to have to lose around about, yeah, like 10 kilos, so over 20 pounds to make weight for the, the Olympic and the, and the regular division. Um, so, yeah, I, I did that both wrongly, as a lot of fighters do, um, and correctly. I came to John Moore's. Uh, to do my undergraduates and I was lucky that I got I got put on a sports scholarship so it was the first time I was exposed to nutrition and strength and conditioning and psychology and things like that and then I I ended up retiring quite early I, I didn't attain my my goal of making the Olympic Games um, so I decided to retire and focus on coaching and as a byproduct of that I um, I started a master's degree in sport and exercise physiology again at John Moores did a master of research degree and as a part of that, I was very, very lucky to be exposed to some real experts in the area of, of sports nutrition, namely Professor James Morton and Graham Close. So I, everything that I was kind of learning on my course, I was then bringing and delivering with my athletes in, in my own team um, and really started to understand the importance of nutrition and S&C and, and the whole sports science realm. And then, yeah, I was very lucky uh, that I got a position in the university as head of sports performance in 2013. Lucky it again that James asked me to do a, um, a PhD, and I did that in in weight making and combat sports. And yeah, a lot a lot of luck to be honest with you, mate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of luck. So just combat sports has been in my life since 1997, uh, and I've just been lucky to compete in a high level, coach at a high level, and now obviously do research and be a practitioner at a high level as well. Yeah, it's almost like the complete package, isn't it? It's almost like you competed in it, you've done research in it, and then you're working with athletes um, yeah. in the field with it as well. So you have a really good understanding and obviously that helps the athletes that you're working with massively. Yeah. So so kind of like one thing I want to talk to you today, Carl, the main thing I want to talk to you about is let's go for almost like a case study. So a fighter maybe comes to you and says, hey, Carl, I've seen all the great work you've done, all the research you've published, all the fighters you've worked with. I could really do with your help working with me to drop weight for my next fight in, let's say, nine weeks' time. How would you go about... So that conversation has just been had with a fighter. What do you do now? What's the next steps? How do you get them from A to B? Yeah, so I suppose the start of the 10 really is, and, and I think this is what a lot of fighters don't understand, is the time frame. The amount they've got to lose versus the time frame that you've you've given the practitioner. Um, I I don't have any issues actually working with somebody as short as a week or even two weeks if they come to you and go, I need to lose maybe up towards five kilos, you know, within a certain percentage of body mass. Because as you know, and I'm sure we'll dig into it a bit later on, there's there's acute strategies that you can do in order to achieve that. Um, so that's not unrealistic. And the guys who come to you with two weeks notice and say they want to lose 12 kilos, then it becomes a bit unrealistic. Even yeah, if they, it's a little bit different, that. <laughs> yeah, even, even if they've got the 12 kilos to lose, um, it takes time to do that safely and effectively. But no, in, in an ideal world, you know, obviously different combat sports athletes have different fight camps. Some will do it as short as four, you know, known some MMA guys who have four-week camps. Um, whereas, you know, working with pro boxers, you'll never ever really have a camp shorter than 10 or 12 weeks you know they, they've really got it dialed in mm. so dependent on the time frame it's not negotiable is, is some sort of assessment of body composition so you know when you're working with a practitioner they they need to assess the potential for you to be able to make weight from the beginning um because understanding your composition how much muscle fats you know lean lean tissue fat free mass whatever you want to call it you've got is crucial to then knowing what they're going to do with you to get you to make weight because mm. the ill scenario for any practitioner is if they do a body comp assessment on you and you're carrying some excess fat well that's that's not a difficult thing to really to really work with you know we've just got to basically you know get get the diet right in, in line with your training and, and you lose that weight but again that takes time it doesn't happen in days or weeks it, it, it takes time for you to be able to do that so yeah, that's a bit of a non-negotiable because I've had fighters in the past who've come to, come to us with like eight weeks and they've got to lose like nine, ten kilos. 
you assess them and they've got like five percent body fat and that was an actual I had, yeah. I actually had a guy come to me who was like 69 kilos who wanted to get to 58 one time and he was like you know if i get to 58 the option i've got to make weight we assess them and it's like look unless we start really well hacking off limbs or <laughs> lose volumes of like you know lean mass and really severely dehydrating you and um, i don't think you, you'd make it anyway and even if you did you'd be in such a bad state of affairs in the weight you wouldn't perform very well mm. uh, side if, the, if you assess it and, and they're able to do it you, you get an idea of a strategy then second thing that we would then do and i know that you do this with your guys seeing seeing you on instagram is we'll assess something called rest and metabolic rate now the reason that we do that is that the, the amount of energy you expend in a day is is comprised of a lot of different things but the main components is called rest and metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate you'll, you'll hear it used interchangeably mm. The same thing but for, for the sake of arguments um and the reason why we do that is because if we can put you on a on a diet equal in the amount of calories you need for that then there's a certain amount of confidence there that you're at least getting the calories you need to maintain that basal metabolic rate or rest of metabolic rate because if we think of that energy as the type of energy that you need to keep the computer running efficiently you know mm. um, I'm, ste I'm stealing that. That's a great analogy. I'm yeah, stealing that. Yeah, no. So the, the <laughs> whole system, the whole system, the whole human body system is organized to keep the CPU running, basically. This is why this, this keeps running for a few minutes after you die. Every single system in the body is hardwired to keep your brain running. Um, and what, what will happen is, dependent on the amount of energy it has running into it, into the computer system, it will start to go into sleep mode in certain parts in order to maintain the energy it needs for that meat, that predominant system. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why if we feed you at least rest and metabolic rate, we're, we're maintaining the, we're maintaining the energy needed for the system. So now whether the person you're working with does that by, by an equation, there are some good equations out there that you can use or whether they measure it with a system you've obviously got, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, like I say, really lucky again, the one that we have in the university is like a 50,000 pounds. Mm, yeah. System that we, we've got a hoard and we can do all sorts of calculations. You know, you can do it with a, like, like yourself. I know you use a portable system with a mask and they all have varying degrees of, of accuracy. But what I would say is any practitioner worth the, worth the salt will do some form of calculation for that because mm. if they don't, then they're guessing, they're, yeah. they're guessing, you know, so you need, you need to kind of work off that. Um, and then after that, you can start to design a person's diet. So you know what composition you need to lose. You know how many calories you've got to play with. You know the time frame. You know then the time frame, you know then I've got X, Y, Z amount of fat and that'll take X, Y, Z amount of time to, to lose if I do with an X, Y, Z amount of calories, et cetera. So a bit of calculation. And what we typically advise, so I, I was very fortunate that a couple of years ago when I did my master's degree, I wrote a paper called Make and Weight in Combat Sports, which has kind of been used as the, again, very fortunate, it's been used as a template, I think, for a lot of practitioners. Yeah, including myself, yeah. Yeah, so and um, what we advise in that is that if the goal is to maintain your muscle mass, your lean mass, we want to be looking in and around two grams per kilo of body mass. You know, so if you have a 70 kilo guy and um, they're going to be eating 140 grams of protein, you know, per day in order to meet that as an example. Um, now, the reason why they do that is there's been a lot of research since we did that paper and prior to that paper showing that in periods of energy deficits, so where you're, you know, you're not taking as many calories in as you need, if you eat adequate protein, you can maintain your, your lean tissues, your mass. If the goal of the practitioner is to reduce that, then you'll reduce the amount of protein that you're intaking. Um, so, for example, if we had a fighter who has to lose 12 kilos, they could lose six of it in fat. You know, the rest we're going to do in dehydration. Um, but we're, we're happy to lose a couple of kilos maybe in lean mass, then we'll, we'll lower the protein to deliberately do that. Or yeah, we might eat... Just going back to what you said there, Carl, about dropping the six kilos of fat and then potentially dropping the rest through dehydration. And that's why yeah. you obviously have to go and get that that baseline assessment of body composition 100%. done. So you can actually see, yeah. I mean, 
using a practical example, I've had it last week where someone wanted to get down to a weight below so they could be like more stronger, more powerful. And um, yeah. they said that they were, you're 100% going to make that weight. And you had to sort of say, well, 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 hold on. We need to see what's under the hood, what your body's actually made 100%, of. If we yeah. can see if you can actually make that safely because it's not worth you uh, performing badly or getting an injury, head injury or something when you actually set foot in the ring. What's the trade-off, you know? Exactly. It just gives you the information to go, okay, we're making the weight, but how are we making the weight? What are, what are we losing, you know, and, and how can we do that? And again, the standard, I'll talk about the standards of practice that you do. But yeah, no, typically, so the protein would be around two grams per kilo of body mass. One thing that really baffles me, well, I say it baffles me, but I suppose it's, there's a, there's a lot of bullshit, pardon my life, <laughs> in the world um, when it comes to this stuff, but one of the first things that people immediately take out of the diet is fat um, and you, you need it. It's a really, really important macronutrient. Um, you know, I see a lot of guys who go like zero fat or very low fat and, you know, it will be lower end of fat in terms of what we'd give to, to somebody making weight, but you, you do need an allocation of fat. And typically we advise around one gram per kilo body mass. So again, if it was a 70 kilo guy, then 70 grams. There are negotiables to that. You might go a little bit lower. I've gone down as low as you know half a gram, so 35 grams in a day. You can go higher as well. The reason why that's important is you actually need dietary fat for a lot of the processes in the system that we were talking about before. I mean, the nervous system, again, if we think of the nervous system like an, an electrical um, wire, the metal wiring inside is covered by rubber and our nervous system is exactly the same. The, the electrical wiring inside is, is innovated by fat so you need you need fat to, to, to be able to function appropriately and it manages a lot of processes inflammatory processes and recovery processes and things like that but yeah in and around one gram did you have a question then mate as well i think i, yeah, I, was, I was gonna say that the brain is correct me if i'm wrong but the brain is majority made up oh, of, of it's, fat predominantly as well. fat. it's predominantly yeah, fatty it's tissue isn't it so guys yeah, are not feeding their brain that's why they say it's brain food when you're a kid exactly isn't it? Your your brain is predominantly made out of fat. That's why another thing, when we when we do body composition assessment, for example, we use something called dual X-ray absorptometry, so a DEXA machine, which is, despite its faults, regarded as one of the best ways to measure body composition. And I suppose it is in, in terms of a lot of measurements. Um, we always take the subtotal measurements without the head because you just don't want to be messing around with trying to lose any mass from the head, particularly mm -hmm. in mass because as you've said the brain is predominantly fat mass but yeah fat's really important and then finally carbohydrates the, the fuel the engine you know the what what you need to to, to keep the the engine going um, i'm sure we'll probably delve into this whole keto stuff <laughs> yeah, and yeah, all yeah. That at some point and again there's 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 merits to that and and there's appropriate situations but for fighters carbohydrates the, the main reason is is carbohydrates are really key and king because they're a very fast acting, readily available fuel source. Um, because ultimately the machine needs glucose and, and carbohydrates are stored, utilized um, as, as a really efficient fuel source to keep this functioning and, and everything else functioning at a high intensity pace that you require them to. So again, the number that we tend to go with carbohydrates is, is three grams. So, Unless you're working at extreme spectrums, um, so, you know, like really heavy guys or really lighter guys, you'll always find the rule of three, two, one, three grams of carbs, two grams of protein, one gram of fat per kilogram of body mass tends to actually be in and around the person's rest and metabolic rate anyway. So you're giving them adequate, um, adequate amounts of protein to support the lean muscle. You're giving them a good amount of carbohydrates for fuel. And then you're also giving them enough fat to support, you know, healthy function. And that is typically what we'll do. And then in terms of what that looks like in a diet, you know, a nutritionist will do all the typical things. They'll ask you what your likes and dislikes are. They'll ask you about allergies. They'll ask you about, um, you know, do you have any, any kind of issues with certain foods? And they will start to design that. And again, it was funny. I had a, I had a discussion with somebody today. I've done this and, and we've also conducted research on this in a fighter eating three meals a day, non-periodized. So set calories, set macros every meal versus a guy who was eating six meals a day, some of which was the carbohydrate was periodized. The end result is the same. 
it's it's not one way tends to be better than another it's all energy balance it's all because energy that's a good point carl because i can see the the cogs ticking in the people that is listening's minds that they're saying oh i've heard somewhere that six meals a day if i eat little and often that's going to fire or boost my metabolism no <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> and that's the an- yeah that's that's the answer yeah, no. so so no eat it, it's personal preference so for instance i'm working with a pro boxer at the minute who very 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 much likes to eat little and often and they like to eat quite dense low calorie but high highly dense foods to feel full they just want to feel full so you work with that you know and you, and you make those macros work in and around their training i have another athlete who literally just wanted to eat three meals a day they like breakfast lunch and dinner and they like the idea of having a large meal that was going to, again, you need to, you do need to periodize the time. And so the typical, you know, the, the holy trinity of time and type and total, it comes to macro and micronutrients within a diet. But, you know, you don't want them then eating the lunch an hour before they're going to do a heavy training session because the digestion of that meal is not, well, it's not going to be efficient to fuel them. And they're also probably going to throw the majority of it up as well when they train. So Carl, like we said about uh, the resting metabolic rate and about how, getting the calories set and the macro set pretty much on the, on the dot on that or above it, depending on how much they're training, et cetera. So yeah. my question is what would kind of happen to a fighter? Because a lot of the fighters are naturally doing it anyway, in regards to their eating below that, having 900 calories a day, what are they actually doing to themselves by doing that? You said about like having the protein to protect the muscle and then the fat for the brain. Naturally yeah. they'll be cutting fats, carbohydrates and protein. Something's got to give to get your calories down. So what effects is that going to have? Yeah, I mean, there's all, all sorts of different connotations. So, like, some guys will cut out fat, some guys will lower protein. You know, other guys will, will cut out carbs because carbs are evil and carbs make you fat and things like that. If, if you go below what the body really requires to maintain its homeostasis, a whole range of things can happen. So there's there's a couple of different concepts. Um, two that are out in the research at the moment are called athlete triad. Um, and another one is called relative energy deficiency in reds, red S or reds. Um, and what they basically are, they're both concepts that highlight what does happen within a triad model. It's the idea or the basis of you eat insufficient energy that will have an effect on your sexual specific um, reproduction. So whether it's menstrual cycle in females or, or um, I suppose, within male sexual function and then also bone health. So there's been quite a lot of documented evidence showing that it has an effect on bone health. The REDS model extends that. So it extends it to, to more, uh, 10 more health related and performance related effects as well. So, you know, we start to see things like effects on immune function, uh, effects on psychological status, effects on metabolic rates, exactly like we said before, everything's hardwired to keep the system um working efficiently so if the system needs for argument's sake 1500 calories but you're only giving it a thousand then it will reduce its requirements for that rest of metabolic rate to a thousand through something called adaptive thermogenesis in order to save energy for the predominant system that it's trying to keep working it's like when, your, lap- it's like when your laptop gets onto 20 percent and then it goes in exactly <laughs> exactly when there's not enough energy for the computer system, the computer system starts smartly shutting things down or, you know, like on your iPhone, it'll, it'll, it'll turn to yellow. Mm. You know, the, the battery goes from green to yellow in order to, to save efficient power for, for mainstream systems in order to, to function properly. But yeah, a byproduct of a lot of this is, like I say, it can have effects on, on reproductive function. It can have effects on metabolic rates. It can have effect on your hormones. So in males, you your testosterone can start to go really low in females. It can, it can mess around with hormones related to your menstrual cycle function. Um, you, you can become immune compromised. So more susceptible to, to getting ill. Um, psychologically, you can, you can develop some real issues in terms of, you know, ir- irritability and depression and things like that. So the idea is, is that there are certain instances when you need to go to that level of calories, but not for a long time and not without a specific reason for doing so in order to achieve a specific outcome. Doing that chronically, so you know, for a long period of time, days, weeks, months, is going to put you in a poor state of affairs, both health-wise, but if you think of it, performance-wise as well. You know, uh, 
one car will only run as good as the fuel that you put in it. He put on lead at 95 into a Formula One vehicle. <laughs> going to run as good as it is if you put in, in the right stuff. Yeah, no, that's a super good point, Carl. And about, I think a lot of guys are going to take a lot away from that and saying that if they're eating underneath that kind of magic number for a long period of time, they're going to potentially get ill, get injured. And I mean, yeah. those two things... Hey. Those two things, that means they could miss four, five, six days of training, three spas potentially in a week. Now exactly. That- yeah. And and the thing is with all this is, like I say, you know, talking probably about the, the keto thing now and ketogenic diets are not inadequate at providing you with energy in order to lose weight or maintain weight. You, you can eat a ketogenic diet and maintain weight. You need ketogenic diets and and put weight on as well in terms of, you know, if you're trying to put lean mass on because it's all energy. Energy is the factor that matters. The problem with ketogenic diets is, is that fat takes a lot of energy and a lot of processes to break it down, to convert it into glucose um, in order to fuel work in muscle and work in tissues, particularly like the brain. So it will do it. But because it takes such a long time to do, it's a very, very, very efficient way of fueling exercise that is at a lower spectrum of intensity. When you're thinking about intermittent sports like combat sports where you need high intensity, particularly in events like prolonged periods of time, you know, like boxing or MMA and things like that, it's just not an efficient way to fuel yourself. It's just not a very efficient way. So... The, the whole keto thing isn't that keto will cause you any harm or do you any damage. It's just not as efficient at giving you the fuel you need in order to, um, in order to compete. Now the, the arguments or the counter argument you get is, Oh yeah, but if I do it long enough, I'll become adapted. Um, well, yeah, that's, that is true. But two things happen as a part of that adaptation. One, the process has become marginally more efficient at giving you energy not 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 as efficient as eating carbohydrates and you actually become very inefficient at using carbs so again i know a lot of fighters who you know will go on a ketogenic diet in order to make weight and then refuel with carbohydrates yeah the the idea of ketogenic diets is not a you know it's not an evil concept it's not something that people shouldn't do in the certain realms where i think it's very useful but for any high high intensity based sport particularly combat sports it's just not an efficient way to make weight and fuel yourself for, for performance and competition. So Carl, just touching on that whole low carbohydrate intakes during camp and how that can affect fighters on fight night, I guess it's one of those ones where a lot of fighters will go low carb because they want to lose weight in camp, but then surely they get to fight night, they weigh in, they go straight to Nando's or whatever and have garlic bread and spicy rice and Haribo's or God knows what else. Um, but they haven't ever during the camp put any of that petrol into their body so their body doesn't know only knows how to use diesel right surely yeah no that's exactly right mate so the the, the issue with low carbohydrate diets or you know like ketogenic you know high fat low carbohydrate diets is that um either way you become inefficient at using it as a fuel again we said before the body's a system it's an it's a wonderfully amazing system that will adapt when you when you put it under a, a period of whatever period you you put it under nutritionally it will adapt to, to, to what you've you know kind of what what situation you've um you've mediated within that within that context yeah you know if you if you're on a ketogenic diet for example you become very efficient at utilizing fuel as a fat not as efficient as you need to be for high intensity sports you know like combat sports um but you also become inefficient at using carbs which is what a lot of you know a lot of fighters will do a ketogenic diet and then they'll you know they'll a carb refuel and it's like you're not as efficient anymore and the cellular molecular processes that go on uh, during that but no you know i carbs is king it's it's the key fuel that these guys need to perform uh, optimally yeah so we've got this sidetrack there which is good obviously you can talk talk for hours and hours yeah. so we've done the the body composition stuff we know exactly what we're working with we've done the rmr resting metabolic rate so we can pitch the amount of calories and then we've set the diet up we're getting yeah. closer and closer to fight week now. And it's probably where we make most of our money as nutritionists. Um, and I guess a lot of fighters will want to know the magic answer. How do they navigate fight week and how do they get from three, four, five kilos over the weigh-in and how do they get down to there safely without doing the things such as, I don't know, spitting in buckets or 
doing yeah. water loads when they hate doing water loads and not doing them properly or yeah, uh, yeah. starving themselves how would they get down how would you get that fighter down to that that way and weight and fight with yeah you? no it's great great question i mean like I say, up until that point, your nutritionist will be patching in with you on a daily or you know weekly basis to make sure that the weight's coming down in a way that it needs to be, and they'll make alterations. But no, I mean ultimately, the week prior to a fight, nobody wants to to get down completely by body composition alone, particularly if you're a grappling-based athlete, you know MMA or judo, because mass is is kind of king in terms of you wanna you wanna have as much mass as you can striking sports tend to want to get down a little bit as much as they can in body composition to be quicker um you know more more reactive and explosive but if if we can lose the weight acutely then then we need to but well not need to we then we should we should mm. do um i think though this is the part to be honest with you though jack that we know the least about and it's also the most dangerous part as well because if you get this wrong um and if you go to extremes which a lot of fighters do you can severely damage your health. Not only that, you, you can die as well. You know, there's been documented cases of, of this, not just in MMA, across a raft of sports, judo, taekwondo, uh, boxing, you know, you name it. People have died from doing this. So I, I think for the for the athletes and the practitioner, it's understanding boundaries and guidelines. So the the way that we're going to do this in, the, in fight week is we're going to try and acutely de dehydrate the body we're going to try and reduce the amount of total body water they have to artificially lower their weight and then be able to, to rehydrate them again there's a lot of ways that we can do that and um, we've got things like active so it's, well we've, we've got perspiration or sweating and we'll do that actively you know so again a typical one in boxing is, is common that they like to run the weight off you know so the, they'll do a run um, they might do it with a, a sauna suit, impermeable clothing, so it's to increase the perspiration rate. You've got passive forms. You know, some people will do um, things like saunas, hot baths, towel wraps. They'll use uh, sauna suits again. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, actually. I found this quite intriguing. Um, Lopez on the weekend in the Loma fight was losing weight playing um, American football. So his dad was launching a ball to him. Like, he was just doing sets and sets and sets of... Yeah, like, yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's a good one that one. You know, it's whether it should be active or passive because you would think active. You know, there's pros and cons. Yeah, there's pros, pros and, cons. and cons. Yeah, there's pros and cons. Culturally, different different guys like to do different things, but there's pros and cons. Active is far better for things like your blood pressure, uh, for 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 things like um, brain blood volume and stuff like that. Um, but you are, depending on the nature of what you're doing in terms of the active perspiration, causing fatigue, muscle damage, you're reducing glycogen if that's not something that you particularly want to do within the muscles so the muscles like carbohydrate stores. Um, but there's pros and cons. Passive, you're not doing those things. Uh, you're not causing any fatigue. But as we said, you're lowering blood pressure. You're altering things you know, that, that don't occur when you do it actively. But yeah, hot baths. Um, saunas whatever it may be towel wrapping uh, and then you've got common ones which everyone will do limiting fluid intake um you've got you mentioned water loading um and then you've got other kind of like techniques that i suppose are becoming more novel way more novel but people are starting to use now when you work with nutritionists in terms of um reducing um interstitial fluid and gut fiber content so low low residue low fiber diets to try and clear the gut uh, low sodium to try and play around with fluid electrolyte balance uh, in order to, to to lose total body water and then reducing glycogen so the thing about muscle glycogen is is that every gram of it is stored with four mils of, of water of, of of body water so for every gram of glycogen you lose you're liberating fluid and the whole idea behind this, mate, is that what we're trying to do is you've got a fine balance between electrolytes and fluids. So in equilibrium, this is what it looks like. Um, and what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to either... So, for example, if, if this is electrolyte and this is fluid, if we reduce electrolytes, so in terms of reduce sodium, the body will reduce fluid, water to bring that back into equilibrium. If we water load, we increase the amount of water and do this, then it will do the same. So it... It's all this process of, of trying to artificially reduce total body water through a range of techniques. 
Mm. We've got, as I mentioned earlier, is, and I know I'm rambling, but I'll get to it. Um, <laughs> we don't know a lot about this stuff. So everything we know about gut content manipulation at the moment comes from colonoscopy patients, so people who, who have cameras shoved up the backside. Um, there hasn't been any like solid evidence in, in sports or even in combat sports, to my knowledge. Reducing muscle glycogen, we don't actually know whether that has, a, has an effect or not. No one's ever actually looked. It's just assumed based on the mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and then things like, as you mentioned before, different forms of perspiration. It's very, very, very individual. Um, I guess it, it obviously takes into context as well, whether it's a day before or a same day weigh-in. So exactly. you wouldn't want to be doing running on a treadmill, would you, if you're uh, uh, 100%, yeah. fighting the same it day? Exactly. It depends on time to the weigh-in. It, oh, sorry, it depends on the weigh-in prior to the competition, so the recovery period. It depends on, you know, what you have available to you. It depends on personal preference in some instances. It also depends on the individual. You know, I was talking to somebody the, the other day. I've had a karate athlete in the past who was, so the, the weight category for them was between uh, either minus 67 or minus 60. They weighed 63 kilos. We were like, let's do a, a dehydration see if we can get you to 60 because the guy would have been a monster. Mm. We did. He literally didn't lose an ounce. And despite gold standard rehydration protocol afterwards, he felt awful for two days. In that instance with this athlete, we went, right, what we're going to do with you, because you're not small for 67. You'd be a monster for 60, but you're not inadequate at 67. We increased his weight to put him at the top of 67. Then I had, I've had another athlete in the past, and this guy used to get on my nerves actually because he just the type of athlete who, who used to make weight easy, would go in a sauna for an hour and lose four kilos, so eight to ten pounds, with a smile on his face. So mm. as soon as within four kilos of his weight, he knew that he could make weight, and then with rehydration, he would perform fine, he would win, he would compete. So it's very individualised, it's very individualised. And the other thing is, in terms of gold standards, so when it comes to dehydration, and again, this hasn't been done in combat sports per se, this is just general guidelines, we know that anything over 2% of your body mass affects cognitive function. We know over 5% starts to affect things like strength and power and specific performance. With between 5 and 10%, you can potentially damage your organs. Over 10%, you may or may not die. You know, which, so which leads us on to quite a cool thing which we can touch on quickly. And you yeah. follow you followed an MMA athlete, didn't you, that did exactly yeah, this so, and, and cut a lot of cut a lot of weight via dehydration. Do you want to talk a bit about that and how yeah, that affected we, we him? did. We, we did. So I suppose before we get into what I would probably advocate to, to understand or, or to get to that point, what we did was like, look, let's try and get a handle on, on what actually happens then. So yeah, no, I um we were fortunate. It, it was a paper led by a, a colleague of mine, Andy Casper. Um, and we were fortunate that he was doing the nutrition at the time for an MMA fighter called Paddy the Baddy Pimblet. I can I can divulge his name now because he's done it himself about 500 times. So he's the athlete in that case study. Um, and yet he reduced his body mass, I think, from 82 kilos to the featherweight limits of 65.4, I think it is, kilo limits. But what's that uh, as a percentage, Carl? The drop. So over, overall, it was eighteen percent of his body mass. So eighteen point one percent. But with a caveat, he did half of it through diet, dietary manipulation. I suppose with you know changes in body composition. But he did the other half in the sixteen hours preceding the weigh-in. So what we did it was like we wanted to assess and observe what actually goes on when these guys do this stuff. Mm. Um, so we measured a range of things. We did performance-based tests. We looked at his, his rest and metabolism. We took bloods to look at his hormones and things like that. And what I can tell you is on the basis of doing what the, the, this guy did, he did a couple of weeks of you know dietary restriction leading in, but it wasn't very severe. Then he did a water load, and then he did this huge dehydration, so cycles of hot baths, towel wraps, and saunas over 16 hours. Um, the the negative effects of that in terms of what it did to this guy's body were a little bit shocking, even to us, to be honest. So, for instance, this guy's testosterone went as low as 1.4 nanomolar. Now, normal for a guy of his age is in the 20s. Wow. Um, the lowest range of what you would expect it to go. If it goes below five, that's that's like clinical deficiency. And... This, this is just off, off the cuff. Me and James James Morton and Graham Close and, and some of the other guys who work in the university, 
we've trialed the literature and as far as we can see that's one of the lowest values that's ever been recorded in a male ever you know so that's that's not good because when your testosterone is that low it has a number of, of effects on on your body's functions which i don't need to go into but just take my word for it it's bad very 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 bad then we measured something called urea and creatinine and, and what this is that's that's kind of an assessment of of renal organ function so so the the organs like your liver and your kidneys in terms of how they're dealing with the dehydration and that his levels of, of urea and creatinine by the end uh, indicated to us that he'd caused an acute kidney injury um and if he was to repetitively do that over subsequent bouts he would lose his kidneys or one of his kidneys which is not uncommon in, in mma athletes and then the final thing for us is we, we looked at his hydration status and the best way to measure hydration is actually in the blood, in the serum. A lot of different ways of doing it. You can look at saliva, you can look at urine and things, but the gold standard is looking at it in blood. And anything over 300 is dehydration. Anything over 305 slash up towards 310 is severe. So he was 322, which is pretty bad. And then, as I mentioned before, we're in this fine balance between electrolytes and fluids. So we measured one of his electrolytes called sodium. And you're in a fine balance in the human body between 135 and 145. Um, over 145, you, you start having issues. Above 150 is death in most cases. And this guy was 148. So wow, it, it, it's not what a lot of these guys don't think, seem to understand is it's not good. Now, he recovered from that, but if you do it over, and if you imagine if you do it over weeks and months and years of your career, you cause an insurmountable damage to your body. So that's where fighters need to understand in making weight, it can have issues, but nutritionists and practitioners need to understand, you know, like there's, there's certain guidelines we need to follow in order for these guys to make weight without any negative, you know, effects on health because... You know, you, you see it, and then guys do stuff like that, and then they win. So they think, well, I can keep doing it. That's not the point. The point is you, you're going to have serious health complications. Well, yeah, you can like, lose a kidney, can you? Or worse, exactly. case, you could die. So it's, it's not. It's not. You know, and then dependence on, I mean, you know, someone said to me, because it was like, you know, you get paid 25 grand for a fight if you're in the bigger leagues. Would you do that for 25 grand? And you were like, well, once maybe, yes. Because I know I'll never do it again. But when you, you know, if someone was like, I'll offer you a hundred grand to do it four times, but there's a chance you could die, you know, you'd tell them to get lost. You go, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what fighters do all the time, you know, and I understand the financial ramifications and they need to do it, but there, there are better ways, you know, there are better ways. And that's where, like, in fight week, what we will advocate is, is a combination of the methods that we talked about before. So trying to lower glycogen and trying to lower the interstitial fluid within the gut to lose a bit of weight um i'm personally not a fan of water loading um predominantly because i just think that you know the, there are gold standard ways of doing it at the moment a good friend of mine who works in the ufc performance institute in shanghai dr reed real came up with a fantastic paper a few years ago given a guideline of how much fluid you should use to do it but you know mma fighters if, if it was a 65 kilo guy and they're meant to do six and a half liters they'll do 10 you know, yeah, so it's, it's one of them ones which isn't so popular in boxing as well, is it? It's more no, MMA, no. and what I found is that most no. of the guys, most of the guys are, are saying that they're doing a water load, and then you ask them the question of um, how much, how many liters of water are you having then four days out from a fight, and are you tapering it down? And they say, okay, I'm seventy kilos, and I'm having four and a half liters of water a day, yeah, and then you then turn around and say you're not doing a water load. Then yeah. you get the other side of the the other side of the, um, the fence where people are doing, yeah, like you just said trying to push it even further and do 10, yeah. 11, 12, or God knows how much, but then they're going to the toilet all the time and they're sat there at the press conference bursting for the toilet. Um, yeah. Well, the, yeah. again, the, the problem with not enough water is it can kill you. The opposite problem as well is too much water can kill you. Any major imbalance in that equilibrium can kill you. So sometimes you may use a water load. I don't particularly advocate it in my practice. If, if I, if I don't need to, some, some people like to do it. So Again, as long as you're working within gold standard guidelines. And then, yeah, typically you will do things like, you know, passive or active dehydration, exactly like you said, Jack, recovery dependence. You know, if you've got time, 
you know, if you're working with a boxer who's got 36 hours and they're like, I prefer running it off, well, no problem, because we know we've got enough time for you to recover from fatigue and for, for us to refuel you. If it's a BJJ guy who's got to weigh in in like two, you know, and then fight in two hours, that's mm. a great, great strategy. So it's all, it's all independent. But yeah, you know, you may use saunas, you may use hot baths, but I think, again, it's all about understanding the cycle of that and making people more comfortable at times, you know. So hot baths tend to be quite good because the head is out of the heat and you can actually cool the head, you know, so you can, you can, you can keep the brain, you know, cool whilst heating the body in order to lose weight where the saunas is well you're just basically cooking everything you know what i mean and thinking about saunas now gives me ptsd to be honest with you so yeah i mean i sat i was i was i was sat in a sauna the other day at the, up for the gym with my mate and i was just thinking like i can't sit in here for more than six seven minutes this is like yeah. this is horrible like why and there's people in there going you like had some, i'm enjoying you had some water with you as well yeah uh, yeah a couple of beers yeah, you know, so it's like <laughs> these these guys who do it so it is very, it's an independent strategy, but in terms of numbers and again, people put absolutes on it, but in the week leading into the fight, you know, Reed did a great paper um, a couple of couple of years ago now that I reviewed actually. Um, and, you know, he says in a, in a typical fight week, you could lose up to 10% of body mass using those strategies, dependent on if it's done appropriately. Through real dehydration though, the magic number's 5%. If you start going over that, it's going to have an effect on health. It's going to have an effect on performance. So in an ideal world, and again, it depends on how much time you've got for recoverability. Um, you know, we, we, we want to go to certain, you know, boundaries or guidelines and 5% tends to be my, my own personal one, if I can. And then the other one rambling again, but, but finishing off is the time to, re to recover. And this is more so for the practitioners because how are you going to do that? You know, bolus ingestions of water versus, you know, period diet or not just water fluid versus how you feed them in order to, you know, full, full glycogen resynthesis takes 24 hours. You know, so if you use glycogen manipulation as a strategy, but you've got less than 24 hours, then, you know, you, you've got to factor that in. And I think a lot of that make goes back to practitioners understanding all, all of the key things that they learn as a sports science student and as a, as a particular practitioner and, you know, putting that into practice. 100%. One thing I want to just go back to there, you said about the dehydration. And one thing I kind of see a lot of is that guys are, are restricting fluid intake. So let's, let's say they're weighing in on a Friday, Carl, and they restrict their fluid intake to maybe one, one and a half liters on the Thursday. If I didn't, if you, if you or me didn't drink, you know, more than a liter today, we would be dehydrated tomorrow morning. Yeah. But then they're then starting in the morning, maybe getting in the bath or the sauna dehydrated but they don't count that in the dehydration phase do yeah they? yeah no they don't so it's a very 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 good point the practitioner wants to be measuring input versus output basically um in an ideal world they'll be they'll be measuring that um probably a great resource to, to look at that is um Aska Yukandrup who's quite a well-known sports science sports science nutrition researcher and practitioner has uh, got a website called my sports science and he's got a, um, a weight loss through urine sweat calculator that you can use to kind of kind of use the numbers to to establish what they've lost. But you're right, yeah. I I, I never advocate any of the guys I work with to, to stop. I, I don't advocate them to stop intaking fluids, probably until the day of the weigh-in, because mm. it's absolutely pointless. It's pointless. It's there's 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 no reason to be dehydrated for that long. We want these guys to be dehydrated for the minimal amount of time possible. Yeah, this this is an interesting side point. And what you're saying is that in fight week, these guys are probably doing the weight cut strategies anyway. But what they're doing is that say they say they starve themselves on the Monday or the Tuesday or they don't eat anything to the Friday. They're naturally doing the low sodium because they're not eating any salt. They're naturally doing yeah. low fiber because they're not having any food which has fiber in. They're naturally going low carb because they're not eating any carbohydrates. Yeah. So if you could say to them, you can have these foods and eat throughout the whole week and then you can drink throughout the whole week and then the day before we're just gonna play around with a few things and yeah no it, it, the way you take that option wouldn't you it takes it does take a little bit of convincing with some guys some guys kind of just throw themselves at you and open up and go at you know i've complete fate sometimes but yeah one of the one of the the most bizarre things that i find is the joy that you see on some of these athletes face when 
they're actually eating the day prior to weigh-in. You know, you know, you've got them like on a low residue, low fiber diet, and like you know, you you hand them like a tub of, like you know, the uh, the low calorie ice cream. Yeah, you yeah, know, like like Halo Top or something, yeah. Yeah, like the Halo Top or something, and they, they look at you and go, I can't eat that. And you're like, you can't, it's in the plan, you know, do it. Or, you know, they're looking at you going, why am I not starving? You know, I should be starving by now, making, and you're like, don't need to be. You know, I don't feel, they're, they're almost weirded out by the fact that they don't feel like shit, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, you don't need to, that's the point. It's been planned, it's been processed. But no, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's down to the practitioner to educate and inform them these are the strategies that we're doing in order to get you to lose this weight. I mean, and another one could be um, for, for all the fighters and, and the, uh, and the practitioners out there. And I don't know whether you do this. I've done it in the past. Do a practice, you know, do, do, do a practice weight cut and go, right, well, start a camp or out of camp. We'll do a practice weight cut and we'll, we'll know exactly what we can lose using a, an acute strategy. And then that way you've got that little bit of confidence in the locker then for when you get to the latter stages. So, this isn't necessarily stuff you want to play around with um, prior to, you know, for the first time at the most important point in the fight camp. Yeah, that puts emphasis, doesn't it, on the kind of the year-round fight camp, which is what I'm going to be talking to um, yeah. on my next episode. I'm going to talk about that and what you can do out of camp to make things better yeah. in camp. Yeah, it's absolutely. So, it's so important. But yeah, like you said, you're not going to be trialing an acute weight cut when you've got sparring or you're mid camp or you're at the start of camp, you don't want to be throwing in VOT max tests yeah. or anything like that. So it's best to do those kind of things outside of camp, which like, like Carla said there guys, is that if you're going to work with a nutritionist or physiologist or whatever, that trying to give them the, the best amount of time possible for them to have the biggest impact is going to be ben more beneficial to you. And in it's, the in, it's the individual, it's the individual, you know, I, I work with some guys who are just number crazy, you know, I'm working with one pro boxer at the minute and, he may as well be a sports scientist. He wants to know everything to the nth degree. I love that because I, I'm a data-driven, you know, kind of like practitioner scientist anyway. So, you know, and we have conversations about everything. I also do as S&C, so we have conversations about everything, chewing the fat. Um, and then you'll have other guys who are like, just tell me what to do. Only interact with me when you need to. It's all about the, those soft skills of understanding that, like you say, you know, I, I have some guys who are very happy to do a VO2 max assessment at the end of camp prior to weighing in because they want to know what the change is. And then I've got others who are like, are you insane? I would never <laughs> prepare them for a fight. So it's, it's relationships, it's understanding, it's knowing and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that's so important. And I, I can sort of agree with that. I've got, got a couple of fighters who some need that sort of assurance every day or they do snap and send. So they send like photos of their meals and then some, you won't hear from them for two weeks, but then you meet up with them or you call them and they say like, yeah, I've been following everything to a T. I've been doing this, this and this, yes. and they've just been getting on with it. So yeah, yeah, everybody's an individual. And especially with that, that weight cut and stuff, guys, you can't, you can't expect your weight cut. No weight cuts are the same, are they, Carl? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, one caveat, I think I, I mentioned this on the Fight Dietitian podcast and I, and I try and say it every time is um, this, we don't know a lot about this stuff and nobody is an expert. I, I, you know, the guys at the UFCPI, Clint Wattenberg and Charles Stuhl and Reed Reel, and they, they will openly say they're not experts and they do it for a living. I did a PhD in it. I do it for a living. I am not an expert. Um, we don't have guidelines. We don't have gold standard. It's very individualized. It's tailored. And the key thing that people need to understand, the fighters need to understand and the practitioners, people can die from this stuff. Um, and from the practitioner perspective, Jack, I know of cases that have occurred um, where a fighter has either been injured or died as a result of a weight cut, and the practitioner or coach or whoever it may be has been uh, put in court on manslaughter or murder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's like if, if you're advising somebody to do this and there's a possibility you can damage them or kill them, you better be damn sure that you, you know, are within ethical, moral, you know, bounds of practice and that you know what you're doing to the nth degree but yeah no every um every weight cut you do with an athlete where the they come out of it fit and fitting well is a is a few moments let me tell you for sure no <laughs> how much it is because everybody's an individual yeah. you know and piece of research just on that point in terms of dehydration piece of research i did recently which is 
just being published in medicine and uh, medicine and science and sport and exercise a case study that i did um which is probably an opposite to the observational one this is more what you should do the guy in that case study lost 2.3 percent body mass through dehydration he did two saunas and, and one active run and again we measured his bloods and we measured a whole range of things and we were massively surprised by how high nowhere near as high as the mma fighters but by how high his osmolality was how high his uh, electrolytes went and how high some of his renal measures, not enough to cause damage, but on such a minimal dehydration, I was really, I was like, wow, like this is pushing towards mm. those upper limits and he's only lost like 2.3% of his mass. So yeah, be careful. Everybody who's doing this, be careful. So to, with the percentage thing, just to put it in context for someone to maybe understand a bit better, let's, yeah. if we use like a welterweight, like at 70 kg, how much yeah. would would two percent be of their kind of body weight, which they'd be losing through fluid? I'll put you on the spot there with mental math. If you got calculated, yeah, I know. I'm, just, I'm in really just, just in just in just in kilos, so someone can say, okay, I'm I'm cutting weight this week in fight week, and I'm going to do less than two percent, or on two percent, I'm going to do some uh, active sweating. How much? How much would that be for that athlete? Yeah, so because we've got this one, remember you got told in school you've got to learn maths because you'll never have a calculator with you all the time. They, they hadn't figured on iPhone, so because I've got a calculator. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so for a 70 kilo guy, uh, 2% is going to be around about 1.4 kilos. Um, you know, so in, in an ideal world, you wouldn't really want to go above that. Where I mentioned before, I, I tend to be happy to go up to 5% because I often know that I can get somebody to rehab, well, time recovery time dependent. So say if it was an MMA fighter, a, a, a pro boxer or a taekwondo athlete, you know, who has that time frame to recover day before weighing, you know, I don't mind pushing it up to 5%. If it was something like a BJ, BJJ athlete who weighs in on the day and then competes, you'd probably go to the lower end of that spectrum, I think, to be fair. Um, so again, relatively for a 70 kilo guy, um, 5% would be up to like 3.5 kilos, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, it's individual. As I mentioned before, I had the karate guy who probably needed to lose, I think, like three kilos, which was below 5% of his mass. Absolutely killed him. So we were like, we're going to go the opposite way. And then I had another guy, like I say, who, who was losing four kilos, which I think equated to about 6% of his mass, but he was fine. So mm. it's knowing your athletes, it's understanding your athletes, it's, it's knowing the ramifications, but... 2% is your, your kind of litmus test, particularly if you've got short recovery. 5% is probably your comfortability zone. You can push that a little bit, a little bit, but know your athlete first and know, yeah. know you know, make sure that you've got an absolutely gold standard um, recovery. So I want to I wanna touch on just on that point quickly, Carl, before we wrap up about the kind of post weigh-in and we'll, we'll keep it short and sweet and, and yep. almost just on hydration because I'm going to do a full episode on post weigh and recovery and rehydration. So if yep. someone is maybe say doing 2% dehydration, say what yep. is the key goal post weighing in, re in regards to rehydration? Cause you see a lot of guys go straight for their meal um, and they pack on, yeah. you know, get straight to Nando's and have chicken and all that kind of stuff. Or is it, is the best thing to do? I almost think in my head that the best thing to do is to get that sodium back in straight away. And you've got, got yeah, things yeah. like, got things like do Diora light or concentrated yeah, drinks and so stuff. Then, you want to talk about that? Yeah. The gold, the gold standard at the moment, and this has been around for a long time now is we go back absolute. So let's say you've lost 2% and that is 1.5 kilos, for example, um, then for every kilo that you lose, you need to replace that with 1.5 liters of fluid, of which 50% would be uh, electrolytes and 50% water. So if, if we went an absolute of, for example, a guy had lost two kilo or the fighters lost two kilos, then I know that I want them to be drinking at least three liters by the end of that day, um, a liter and a half of electrolyte-based solution and a litre and a half of fluids. And again, one thing that I, I always encourage guys to do, again, this goes back to your classical, you know, hydration-based research. Don't whack the entire three litres down here within 30 minutes because what goes in must immediately come out, you know. So the idea behind having the, the electrolytes in there is that it, it's to, to help you hold on to the fluid. 
but that will only happen for so long, depending on how much comes in. So let's say if I had a guy who's lost two kilos, I, I know I'm going to, um, they've weighed in at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, they've got to have three litres. I might say to them, I want you to have that three litres uh, in the next five hours prior to the main evening meal at 6 p.m. And then after that, you can drink ablibitum and drink whatever you want then. You know, so the first drink might be a, you know, one of the best recovery drinks on the market, actually a chocolate milk. So 500 mils of chocolate milk, 500 mils of a, um, of like, a, like you say, dioralite, electrolyte tabs, or, you know, even something like Lucozade is great because it's not got tons of electrolytes in it, but it's, it's full of carbohydrates. And then a bottle of water, you know, and I might go, right, get the electrolyte down, you're quick because you're thirsty, sip on the water and then start getting the, but you've got to time them, you've got to dose it. Yeah. Don't just let them whack it down them straight away. But yeah, going around the houses, 1.5 um, litres per kilo of body mass lost. So just times 1.5, by the number they've lost, and you get your number. Make sure 50% of that's got electrolytes in it. Because, yeah, I see the, the such a good tip there for fighters with the electrolytes, whether that be from milk or Lucozade or Dioralite yeah, or whatever. Yeah, no, like, if you're just drinking water, it's 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 like Carl said, it's just going to go in and uh, out. It's, it's about how much water makes it to your actual cells in the body, um, which is obviously what the electrolytes help the biggest, with. So. Yeah, the biggest one is a lot of MMA fighters tend to be, or I think the trend's starting to die off now. We're sponsored by them alkaline water companies, you know, so... Yeah. And they, they drink alkaline water post-weighing and you're literally like, you're just going to pee that out. You're not going to retain a lot of that. So you need, or, you know, they'll drink, some of them drink distilled water. You're like, that's great, but you need something, you know, you need, we know that protein, carbohydrates and, and electrolytes help you retain that and do it over a period of time. So no, a, a typical one for me would be, let's say, let's say they weigh in at one in the afternoon. First hour, focus on rehydration. Give them something that's going to fill the stomach, you know, a, a milk-based drink or a shake or, a, you know, with fluids, some fruits, some high-carbohydrate, high, um, high-sugar fruits, but high, high water, you know, pineapple's great, mango's great, things like that. Then maybe something smaller, you know, like a, a sandwich, you know, filled with, you know, lean meats and some vegetables and things like that. Dose it. One of the worst things you can do do and a lot of fighters do I, I've done it before is go out and gorge and feast because you will you're not helping the process of recovery some people when they do that feel like crap anyway I remember one time I, I made the mistake of making weight over in Ireland um, I think this was a bit unfair actually because the weigh-in was above a, a Burger King um, and I immediately went and got a, a Whopper meal and a, um, and one of the chicken things and I felt like crap yeah, I know, I know, I know a professional boxer who did that on the same gosh. day weighing and wasn't prepared and had a KFC and was sick two times before his fight. Yeah, no, you will feel because you're going from extremes, you know. So you want to, you know, you've come down gradually. You want to increase gradually as well. And if you do it right, come your evening meal at six p.m. You can eat like a king or a queen, and you'll feel top draw. And then the next day, particularly if it's the day before weighing you can eat relatively well and normally and you won't feel any negative effects. There you hear it, guys. Chocolate milk post-weigh-in. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, bet, I bet a lot of fighters would absolutely love to get that down them as soon as they step yeah, the scales anyway. I was anyway, going to say, so. you, you do need to start doing sponsorships for fighters in the <laughs> business. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's absolutely amazing, Carl. Um, I think we're going to wrap things up there, just conscious of time. But Sorry. yeah, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Um, and this is going to be such good information for fighters to, to take from this. Um, whether that be planning out their fight camp or planning out what they need to be doing in fight weekend, even the little tip there about hydration post weighing. Just for the guys, yeah. if the guys want to check out some of those papers that uh, we spoke about earlier, Carl, where can they? Where can people find you? Yeah, um, my so my handle is at CLE Sposci, so C L E S P O S C I. That's on Twitter and on um, on Instagram. So you can hit those up. Um, more so on Twitter uh, the papers will be on there That I haven't got a pin tweet but if you, if you go through you'll find them and then yeah if anyone's got any questions just, just shoot me a message I don't mind getting back to people that's fine great stuff Carl I'll have to get you on for a future episode and talk a little bit more about yeah, no, one, of those, one of those case studies in more detail definitely for sure mate be happy to help and that wraps up episode one of the Ringside Nutrition Podcast I hope you all took something useful away from my chat with Carl 
But there's still so much misinformation out there when it comes to nutrition for combat sports and weight cutting in particular. The work that Carl does in the field and the research that he's continuously publishing is a great guide for anyone to use when mapping out their nutrition for fight week or their fight camp. But as we mentioned, there's still so much that we don't know and there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to making weight. But getting the right help from a qualified practitioner can help any fighter improve the process that they're going through. Be sure to follow some of Carl's work in the future. This podcast will be available via Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you guys on episode two of the Ringside Nutrition Podcast.